this this weekend I was at uh, Presbytery. Um, Presbytery is, happens three times a year, and um, it's a regional meeting of our EPC churches, and this it moves around, and this time it was in Florence, South Carolina, about three and a half hours from here. Um, our presbytery in our denomination is, is the largest presbytery, um, not geographically, although it's a pretty big one geographically, but one-sixth or, or, or more than that of our denomination is in our presbytery. It's huge. We have 120 churches, something like that. And um, it's been great for us. We've been able to plant churches together. So we, we support our presbytery um, gladly, joyfully. And because of that, we get to be a part of church planting in our region. And we do that because just statistically, it's true. Um, people who are, people are more likely to hear the gospel and respond for the first time when a church is planted. Um, so we believe in planting churches because we believe in growing the kingdom through, through conversion and through uh, the church going into places where there, there is no church. Um, in this presbytery, we voted to begin a process of multiplying our presbytery of going from one giant presbytery to, to three presbyteries. And it's gonna be a it's gonna be a two to four year process. And nobody's ever done this before in our denomination. People are kind of watching us from around the country trying to see how this is going to work. Um, where we'll start regionally, it'll be a smaller region, we'll tighten in and we have to hit sort of budget check marks to make sure all those little presbyteries can be freestanding. But the goal is to have three smaller presbyteries so we can have a tighter relational network to plant more churches. That, that's what we want to do. And um, I've seen that in our own region where uh, we, we've met as pastors together. Uh, and the tighter we get relationally as pastors, the more it becomes feasible to look across the table and say, I could plant, we could plant a church with you. We know you. Um, we can partner together. That's where we want to get to. We are not there. It is a process for us as a church. But um, this Tuesday, um, past Tuesday, I went down to Brevard uh, with Rick King and Daniel High. And we went to a church plant down there, Grace Brevard. We've supported them a little bit. And uh, they are ready to become a fully independent, uh, self-governing church. And we're sort of handing the baton to them, uh, saying our denomination doesn't have to watch over you. You're part of us now. You're on equal footing. You're a big boy church. In fact, they're, they're plenty big. They're, they're bigger than us already. But what we did is we sat with their elders and just we gave them exams. What do you believe? Are you following Jesus? Are you trusting Jesus? And it was amazing to hear how, how in the life cycle of this church plant, um, they have been given over to the mission of Jesus in Brevard. God is doing stuff in Brevard through their church in, in ways that are unexpected. There's people from all over that community that are coming to this church and, and indeed people who are responding to the gospel for the first time. It's, it was a really fresh reminder to me, this is why we're doing all of this. 
So we have brothers and sisters in Brevard now who, if you're part of this church, you've sowed into that church, you're connected to them because they're an EPC church, but also we've given to them. Um, and we just want to see more of that. That's, that's what we want to be about. Uh, not, not brand multiplication. I have no desire to be a pastor of a megachurch. I have no desire to have my name on a billboard. I have no desire for us to be a giant church ever. I would love to just see us continually saying, how can we give away our resources, our people, our gifts, so the churches will be planted, the kingdom will be multiplied. That's, that's what we want to be about here. Um, in ways that we're kind of experiencing that in a way that I did not expect with what's going on with Swannanoa Valley Prince, that uh, you know, they approached us about merging our congregations, giving us their building. And I told you I did not pray for that. I never could have expected that or asked for that. But as we were in there on Wednesday, if you, if you were there on Wednesday, can you raise your hand? <clears throat> yeah, this is a good number of people. That fellowship hall was full. Um, it was kind of, kind of wild. There was just a lot of people in there. They opened up their whole building so that we could see um, what the sanctuary looks like, what the kids' rooms look like. And um, I just I, I want to encourage us as a congregation. They're really aiming for this to happen beginning of March is what they're talking about. That's, which is very soon, alarmingly soon. <laughs> ah, oh, a little anxiety attack right there. Um, it is. Uh, it, it was tempting that night and, and elsewhere to just walk in there and say, "We could do this, and we can do this, and we can do this, and we can do this." And it was so cool to see everybody so excited. Um, I, I'm excited, and it was cool to see that for other people. But uh, I think it's really important that we start praying now that when we enter into that building, we would see our brothers and sisters that are already there, that have been in that building since before I was born by, and by some distance. And they are able to say, we fundraise to put those bricks in that wall. Our kids put that cross on the wall. I did my son's funeral in this room. There is a, there's just a rich wealth, inheritance in those folks. Um, and what they have done is said, we want everything that's here to be leveraged for the kingdom of Jesus. We want to give that away so that the gospel would be preached in our valley. That attitude, that heart is instructive. Uh, I would hope that our attitude together is, first, what can these folks teach us? Because the answer is a lot, <laughs> a lot. And that doesn't mean we're going over there and we're going to become them. And there's going to be things that we're going to do that are just, it's just going to be different. That's just going to happen. 
But our attitude has to be, how do I give away what is mine by rights so that the gospel can be preached? Because that is exactly their attitude right now. How do I give away what is mine and lay down my rights so the gospel will be preached? That's going to be a commitment from all of us. When we go in there, you're going to have a moment where you could say, I don't like this. I don't like the way this looks. I don't like the way this sounds. I don't like the way we're doing this. And guess what? Everybody in the room is going to agree. Nobody's going to be happy. That's my pitch to you. No one gets to be happy. But what we want is to serve our brothers and sisters, to lay down our rights, not so they can be happy or we can be happy, but so the gospel can be preached. That's what we care about more than anything else, is that Jesus gets to take center stage. Jesus. Not my agenda, not their agenda, not these colors on the wall or that carpet. Jesus gets to take center stage. And that's perfectly in line with what we've been talking about these, these few weeks. Is our vision is, starts with the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus is king. Not, not me, not you, not anybody else. Jesus is king. And we want our, our lives individually and corporately to be arranged around that truth. That Jesus is king. And sometimes that truth is a healing balm. It is a relief. And sometimes that truth cuts like a sword. But it doesn't make it any less good or true either way. Jesus is King. This morning we are looking at how that truth forms us as people. Together, individually, and corporately. So we talked about gospel, community, and now discipleship. We care about how God's people are transformed more and more into the image of His Son. So I'm going to read in Philippians 1 and then a couple verses in Romans. This is Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because, <clears throat> because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then in Romans 12 a rather famous passage that may be familiar to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This morning, we're looking at discipleship, which is the task, ultimately, of the church. If you are familiar with the Great Commission, which I hope you are, Jesus stands before his disciples at the end, and what he, what he commands them towards is discipleship. What he commands them is that you go throughout the whole world, preaching the gospel as you go, you are making disciples, you are teaching what Jesus taught and teaching them to obey it. That's the process of disciple making in a nutshell that you learn the character of God, that you learn what Jesus teaches, and you learn to obey. Because discipleship is about transformation. Discipleship is about changing us day by day into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, if you grew up in the church like I did, this conversation is, is fraught. Because right away, if you're like me, your, your, your brain, your heart engages into a war within you. I know that Jesus died on the cross for me, and I'm, I'm going to heaven because of that. I, I believe that. I trust that. But I need to be better and do better. And when I do, when I do worse, God's not happy with that. I need to make Him happy. But I thought he was happy with me already because of the whole cross thing. So how does this work? And so you just sort of you, you take, you take the image and you sort of flip it over and around again and again. How does this work? And it's hard to, to read the map and get oriented. What do you want from me? What, what do I have to do here? Or don't do? Maybe I shouldn't do anything. Or everything. What is it? And if you're like me, I, I, am, I am a classic firstborn. I want to get the answers right. Just tell me the answers. And I want to get them right. And it feels like there's two different sets of questions with different answers, and it can feel very confusing. And on top of that, this, this sort of ping pong that goes back in your head, I have to do nothing. I have to do everything. There's the reality and the truth of your life. And it's depressing. Because the reality of your life at times, you look like and you just say, I don't know what the answers are, but I am really botching this. I keep finding loads of evidence that something is deeply not right inside of me. And I know that there are, if you don't experience any of this, bless you. Um, I need you to mentor me. If you experience some of these pullings, though, what I want to do is try to boil things down, simplify, and provide for you a, a very basic vision of what we think is supposed to happen in discipleship. And, and Paul does provide for us some elements here in the book of Philippians and in the book of Romans about what needs to happen. And some of them are, are, are things that 
that should make sense. And if you grew up, especially in an evangelical church, should be unsurprising to you. Paul, Paul emphasizes in that passage in Romans 12 that you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what, what we mean here, what Paul means here, what the church has always believed is that you have to learn to think the way that Jesus wants you to think. You have to engage your mind and learn new patterns of thought. Very basically, that's what we're talking about. Now, we clarify that by saying the way that you learn that is by hearing and meditating on the words of Scripture. Discipleship rightly happens. Your mind is over and over again changed properly when you meditate on Scripture. Now, that, that opens up a whole box of possibilities. Because immediately what people want to do is say, okay, how, just tell me the answer. How many verses do I need to read a day to get this done? And, and look, if you need that, we can, we can do that. I can, I can help you figure out how to read the Bible. What, what I would suggest to you, though, is that you don't have to approach this this way. You need, I need, to meditate on Scripture, to hear the character of God, the character of what He does in the world, which is so often alarmingly different than the way that you and I think. And that does not require a certain number of verses to be read. Let me just give you a couple reasons why I think that. One, for 1,500 years, the Christian church existed, and no one had a Bible. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible existed. Churches had Bibles. The printing press did not exist. The Bible existed. People heard Scripture. But the odds of you having a Bible in your home were very, 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 very slim. Basically nil, unless you were extraordinarily rich. And if you want to believe that you were, probably would have been a, you know, a rich lord in the year 1012, great. That's fine. For the most of us peasants, we wouldn't have had the Bible. The church would have had the Bible. Secondly, there are a great number of people, some of them live in your home and are this large. Some of them are adults who never got to go to school. Some of them are adults who went to school but don't read very well because of learning disabilities that they have no control over. And those people, all of those people, can still meditate on Scripture. What I'm, what I'm suggesting to you is that if you have a Bible, yes, the simplest solution to this is read it. Pull it off the shelf, open it, and move your eyeballs over the page. Read your Bible. There is no special ingredient to this that you don't have to wait. Well, when the light is just right, 
And when I am at maximal combination of awakeness and quietness, then I just read it. Just read the Bible. Don't, don't worry about the burden of how many chapters you read, how many verses you read. Just read it. Because what Scripture will teach you is you and I do not think like God. In fact, you never will totally be able to think like God because His mind is infinite and yours is tiny. Mine too. I'm not just talking about you. Our minds are tiny in relation to His Word. His law is there so that we can look at it again and again in small little bites or big And we are reminded again and again, God does things that are unexpected and different because not only is his mind infinite, but his character is infinitely better. And what it requires of us often is just submitting ourselves to the difference between me and God. So there's a lot of ways where you will read the Bible in small bites and you will say, I don't understand this. You did a good job. Sometimes you not understanding is the point that you are different than God. Now, of course, I would encourage you to try to understand. We have to recognize our place. And for your children, for the people who struggle with reading, for people who, are, who never learned how to read, for people who have learning disabilities, This is where the wonders of living today in 2019 really help us because you can probably pull up an app and press play on it and it will read to you. If you have children though, an even better suggestion is read to your children. Don't use an app. You pick up a children's Bible. Read it to them. Because this is the way that Israel for centuries passed on the law of the Lord to their children. And this is, in fact, a good way for all of us to learn, not just by reading with our eyeballs, but reading with our ears. To have the Word read to you. To read just a verse or two or three and to stop. And as the Psalms say, Selah. Just pause and meditate. When you subject yourself to this for day upon day upon day, for year after year upon year, Scripture washes over you like a river and slowly starts to polish off corners of your mind. So that you who were once a rocky and prickly stone suddenly see in you areas that are becoming smoothed over over the course of a long time under the rushing waters of God's Word. And that's what Paul is getting at. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind happens as you listen to Scripture. And there is a communal aspect to this. So we don't believe that the the key to your spiritual life is you in a Bible by yourself in a room, never sinning because you never run into other people, never doing anything except sitting and read the Bible. That's not a fully fleshed out spiritual life. And in fact, it's not even a fully fleshed out spiritual life with the Bible. 
Because what often needs to happen is in community, the Bible has opened up and people speak the word of Scripture to you in a way that you had never thought of it before. And it turns out God speaks to other people, not just you. That Scripture, sometimes you miss what it's saying. Your ear is a little deaf for some reason. And for some reason, somebody else's ear is sensitive to what Scripture is saying. We believe that Scripture alone is the full revelation that we need for all that is necessary for life and godliness. We believe that. But it doesn't mean that you and a Bible alone are what we believe in. The Bible works in individuals and in community. That's why community is so important to us. See, these, these values that we have, gospel community, discipleship, they're like concentric circles. They're interlinking domains. So, discipleship. Listen to what Jesus teaches. And the second thing that, that Paul gets at in these passages is that you learn to obey them. That you actually learn to hear the words of Jesus and to obey them. Paul says it, in Philippians, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's that hearing the word part. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. It's not just enough to just read Scripture. But instead, the call of a disciple, the call of one who is following Jesus as king, is that you actually learn to let him be the king of your life and dictate the terms of life in the kingdom. And that you actually learn to become pure and blameless. Goodness, that's a high bar. Pure and blameless. The bar is high, high, though, because the standard is Jesus. Jesus makes that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching his disciples what life in the kingdom looks like. And we, we can't make Jesus into what he's not. And he's not just sitting there saying, guys, whatever. Just whatever. He's actually much more intense than that. That it's not enough that you don't murder. You can't be enraged in your heart at your brother. It's It's not enough to just not actually sleep with somebody else. You can't lust in your heart. And Jesus is moving through the law like this, explaining how intense the demands of the kingdom are, centering the, the ideal for character, the code for behavior on himself as the perfect embodiment of following God. And Paul says, be pure and blameless. And goodness, that is, that is a troubling demand. That is a troubling demand. So by, by its very nature, the life of discipleship is not just hearing Scripture but a life of confession and repentance. Of seeing all of these places that you fall short of this perfect Jesus. And confessing and repenting again and again and again. 
And, and as you enter into relationship with other people, and you enter into this life of habitual repentance and confession, it enables your fellow travelers on the road to following Jesus to be able to tell you the gospel, to tell you the truth. That God sent the king to open a way for people who could never on their own strength live in the kingdom. That the road to to purity and blamelessness is not hinged on the strength of your will, but on the strength of his own character. Because life in the kingdom was always only about his own life. Underneath this life of Scripture and confession and prayer is at base this rock-solid security. And this, this is where people, if this is not secure for you, this where the Christian life will feel like topsy-turvy, uncontrollable, terrifying. Because you will in one moment say, I am doing great. And then the sun will rise on the next day and you will say, I am doing terrible. And if the, the metric, if, if the thing that by which you are being judged is your own character and your own ability to make right and good choices, to, to exercise your will appropriately, independently of any help, then you will be up and down all the time. And you will be at sea, constantly looking for solid land. But in the Christian life, in the life of the disciple, the first conviction is that Jesus the King is your King. And that Jesus your King has decided to rescue you. Jesus your King has set His love on you. And the way Paul will say it earlier in Romans is that He decided to show you His love by coming when you were opposed to Him, an enemy of Him, rebelling against Him. And when you were in that state, when you could have no doubt that there was nothing appealing about you, that in that moment, God proved His love by dying for you. God demonstrates His love while you are still a sinner. He dies for you. And those are the the incontrovertible, the immovable facts of the chronology of discipleship. It's always Jesus first. It was always Jesus' action first. It was always His own virtue first. It was always His own action first. It was always His pursuit of you first because He is the King. See, this gospel thing is not just about you making sure you get into heaven. It is not just so you have your card, your fire insurance card. It is a forever, daily, all day, every day thing that has to be said to you by yourself, by Scripture, and by your community again and again. I'm not the king. Jesus is the king. I, I, I failed today. I, I have sinned in serious and grievous ways today. I'm not the king. Jesus is the king. 
And when you constantly see Jesus as the King who comes and He rescues, and if you see it again and again, you are slowly transformed by love. Because God is not weighing you on the scales all the time. He is instead approaching you as a son or a daughter. There there are seasons in my life as a parent where I am just so over it from any one or one of my children. I don't know how I can do this today with you, child. You are breaking me. But I will never, ever, ever stop loving my children. I I will never stop loving my children more than any of you people or anybody else. My daughters, my son have a place in my heart that is immovable. And so when I discipline my children, when I am discipling them towards the goal, it is out of a place of wanting the best for them, out of a place of secure love. And if my my disciplining as a parent ever communicates to them that I, I love them or like them slightly more or less based on how they are acting at any given time, then I am failing in communicating my love. I am failing in communicating what I want for them. And you have been called sons and daughters of God. The affections of God have been set on you. And there's nothing that you can do about it. You can run far away from Him. You can rebel against Him. You do rebel against Him. But what you cannot believe in that moment is that God is putting you on some elevator scales, riding you up and down. Well, right now, He's like a seven. Yesterday, four, three. Now He's up and now He's down. The level is set. You are loved, period. And because you are loved, you are free. There there is not a burden of compulsion. There is not a a debt put into you that you have to bargain with God. You cannot put God in your debt. He's already just told you, here is the wealth, the riches of what it means to be a son or a daughter. Yours, forever, sealed, done deal. You can't do anything about it. You can't argue it away from Him. You can't come to Him and say, I really don't deserve that. You should probably give it away. He's not going to. Because of the work of the life and death and resurrection of His Son, that inheritance is locked and sealed for you forever. So our life as disciples is not just about grinding through a Bible reading plan, praying a certain number of times, hoping to be more and more moral people as we go along with those things alone as the objectives. Our life as disciples is instead starting with absolute freedom and acceptance in Jesus. Our life is starting at the place where God is delighted to have you as sons and daughters. 
that he put his own spirit inside of you so that the words, Abba, Father, would come out of your lips. He loves you. It's sealed. You're free. You're not earning anything from him. The only thing that you're growing in is an easier rest in his character. The only thing that you're growing in is not his approval and trying to get God to like you more. The only thing that you're growing in is a fuller life in the kingdom. You're going from great to more great. And it doesn't mean that discipleship is easy. It doesn't mean that growing in the character of Christ is a a breeze. For many of you, everyone, there are many times where you look at yourself and say, when am I ever going to get this? I'm just not getting better. And God is so slowly changing you that you don't even notice it. I, I read an analogy recently. Pickling. You know how to make pickles? It's cucumbers and brine water. And you, you drop the, the cucumber in the pickling solution. And the guy said, if you dip it in and pull it out, you just baptize the cucumber. That's the only thing that happened. It did, not, it did not become a pickle. You have to put it in there, apparently, for six weeks. And if you could talk to the pickle, if you could talk to the pickle, at any point along those six weeks, and you said to the, to the cucumber slash pickle, what are you? You'd probably say, I'm a cucumber. From one day to the next, just a cucumber. Still a cucumber. But at the end of the six weeks when you pull it out, oh goodness, I'm a pickle. <laughs> they didn't even recognize where it happened. It just did. Life with Jesus is very much like that. You oftentimes do, and do not realize what God is doing. You just, you, you miss it. You can't tell. And then suddenly, your community, somebody in your community probably will come around you and say, you know what? You're a lot different now. You don't do that thing that you used to do. I hope soon that somebody will soon come to me and say, you know what? You don't yell at your children as much as you used to. <laughs> You, you, you miss it because God is doing things so slowly, making such marginal changes in you. But that is the center of our hope, and it's the center of Paul's prayer, is that God will complete the work that He's begun in you. The foundational principle of life as a disciple of Jesus is that the gospel is true and Jesus is king. And the final word, the final truth of discipleship is that the gospel is true and Jesus is king. He's king over your own discipleship. He's king over your own character. And he invites you to participate in the life of the kingdom. He doesn't just say, just sit there You are not like the pickle. You don't get to just sit there and do nothing and say, well, God will change me. That's not the life of the kingdom. The life of the kingdom is better than that. 
Jesus invites you to participate. He invites you to be a part of the nature of the kingdom, the work of the kingdom. And in your participating in all of yours and mine immaturity and stumbling roughly in the right direction, God somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit over the long span of time does something that we could not imagine. You are called to that kind of life if you, if you look to Jesus. If you are living your life <clears throat> right now and you are just sort of trapped by these competing stories. You're not quite sure whether Jesus loves you right now or whether he will love you if you do better. You need to hear the gospel and hear that the, the, the voice of the cross speaks over those voices and tells you the truth. Even when you were a sinner, God loved you. And that status is fixed forever. And that may seem unbelievable to you because of the power of shame, the power of present experience. But what the cross as an actual historical event gets to do is say, yeah, 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 this is the truth. God loves you, period. And if you are, if you are frustrated in your life as a disciple, let me encourage you. You are like every other disciple ever. You are not uniquely sinful or bad. And if you would turn to your neighbor, to your left or your right, and really get into the guts of what you're experiencing, I, I feel confident that one of those two people would be able to say, yep, been there, am there. You're not alone. You are not in the midst of a struggle to get God to approve of you. You are in the middle of God working out what He has done. And He will complete the work that He's begun in you. Take heart. Keep going. Now, if, if you are sitting here and you are sitting alone, and your whole life with God maybe involves a Bible, but it basically involves you and that Bible and nobody else. And you are saying, man, I hope I get better. You, you are in trouble. Not that God is going to lose sight of you or something like that, or that God's going to kick you out. But this thing does not work if you do this by yourself. You were meant to be known. You were meant to be spoken to. God speaks to you in His Word and sends others to speak His Word to you. And if you are alone, you are limiting your resources in growing towards Jesus. And we as a church want to be a people where everyone is involved in discipleship relationship. It doesn't mean we have 40 wise people waiting in a closet somewhere we can just sort of assign them, like, here, they, they'll make you better. Here's a sage, boom, they'll fix you. That's not what we have. What we have is relationship with one another, guided by Scripture, leaning in to hard questions and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to transform you 
slowly over time in the context of relationship and a community arranged around Scripture. And if you don't have a relationship like that, we want to help you. We want to help you find one or two people where you can get into these rhythms of confession, repentance, Scripture, prayer. And ultimately, all of us together have this thing happen that Paul prays for that we would grow in love. Ultimately, all of this is about, first, the love of God for His people and the cultivation of love for God in His people. It is a highway, two-way highway of love. And you don't need to be alone anymore. You don't need to sit on the sidelines of love. You don't need to worry about whether or not you are able or should partake of the gifts of love for the people of God. Because Jesus is king. He gets to determine what life in the kingdom is like. And this is the gift that he wants to give to you. That you would receive his love and you'd be transformed into a lover. Now and forever the feast of love would be your meal and you would know no other. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the king, that you are forming a community of disciples, that you are forming us to know and obey your commands, not because those are the rungs by which we will climb to heaven, but because you want the best kind and quality of life for us, an eternal kind and quality of life. And you have not hinged that plan on our own character, our own will, but instead have given us your Holy Spirit. Speak to us by your word, placed in your community so that you would complete the work that you are doing throughout our whole lives. Father, I pray for those who are caught in the grips (coughs) of wondering whether that they are accepted or acceptable or not, who are captured by secret shame, who are addicted to comfort, security, money, pornography, any number of things that in the darkness of their hearts they are hoarding and clinging to and they are ashamed because they know that they should not be hiding in darkness like this. I pray, Father, that You would speak the truth to them right now, that You see them in all their secrecy, and You'll love them. I pray, God, that they would see before them a way out of this darkness by by confessing their sin to you and to a brother or a sister that the light would rush in and free them. And Father, I pray that we would hear these prayers of our brother Paul that we would hear this call to a life of love as we learn to think your thoughts after you. 
Father, I pray that you would help us to be a church that is knit together as a community of disciples, that no one would be alone, that we would have relationships pulled in together that would take seriously the call of delight and love the way of Jesus. Help us not to just be a people who say it, but a people who do it. I pray that your word would come alive to us and would shape us and change us. That we would eat and feast of your word and let it sweep us away. We look to you, Lord Jesus, to complete what you have started, to to bring out these good changes in us. We give ourselves over to you in freedom and in love and joy. Make much of yourself in our lives individually and corporately, Lord Jesus, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the fame of your name in this valley. Amen.